well, I'm going I'm to do something really different right now. I'm calling an audible. Uh, in the last two services, we have uh, you know, kind of broken our stride in worship and uh, given an update on our Better Together campaign, and, and I'm not going to do that right now, and I'll tell you why. There's a, a, a vibe in the room right now that I think is very spirit-led. You guys are focused on God, aren't you? Tell me you're focused on God right now. Amen. And, uh, and so I want to go right into his word. And if you want to update on Better Together, you can get it on our website or I'll mention it next week. But for this service now, uh, and as our other campuses and venues join us, let's not break stride because Jesus is going to walk us into some amazing waters today. Let's just pray now and then ease into his word. So let's pray. Father, I, uh, I thank you that we have just sung the most glorious things about your sovereignty, your grace, your truth, that you are with us in the battle, and that, Lord, you are the one who holds victory. And we're going to see today, Father, uh, for us and for Northridge and Cactus Chapel and Venue, that, that that is true when it comes to this thing called peace. That, that, Lord, we want peace in our lives, but we fail to recognize who is the holder of peace and where our peace is found. And today, we want to repent of that. Today, we want to shed the things of this world, at least for the next half an hour, and focus on you, the giver of peace. So, God, open our, yourself up to us as we open up your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I got to ask you a question as we get into today's subject. Have you ever met a follower of Jesus who had the kind of personal inner peace that you not only admired, but thought, man, do I want that and salivated after that? Have you? And before you answer too quickly, I'm talking about the kind of peace that doesn't come from circumstances. It has to transcend circumstances and come from somewhere else. You see, the problem with this discussion on peace is that quite often when I hear Christians say I'm at peace and then I ask them why, they say, well, you know, the checkbook is balancing. Isn't God good? And, you know, I got the job promotion and, you know, the wife isn't mad at me and the kid isn't taking stupid pills. And we point to all the circumstances around us. We baptize them by saying, isn't God good? And say we have peace. The only problem with that is that the peace we're going to look at today today is the kind of peace in which whether circumstances are good or not, whether life is going great or not, there's going to be an obvious sense of inner contentment, of freedom from worry, a calm in the midst of the storm. I ask you, have you ever met a Christ follower with that kind of peace? I have. I can clearly remember the very first person that I met like this. He was the man who led me to the Lord 38 years ago. And boy, did this guy have the kind of peace that I wanted for my life. I was a junior in high school, going nowhere fast, spiritually completely dead. And I met this guy one day at my high school. He's, this is a picture now of modern day, 40 years ago. He was much younger as all of us were. And, uh, and this guy's name is Joe. Uh, Joe, as you can tell, is a, a Lebanese-American man born in Detroit, and he was born and raised in a typical Midwestern home, semi-religious, but not really a relationship with the Lord. They just went to church now and then. And being raised in a great Midwestern home, his parents wanted him to go to the university, so he won a scholarship to the University of Michigan and traveled 
track and field, excelled in sports, and when he graduated, decided to go into sports journalism. He landed a cherry job at Baldwin Wallace College in Ohio, just outside of Cleveland there. And yet just before graduating from the University of Michigan, somebody shared the gospel with him. Somebody shared that it's not about religion, it's not about going to church, that it's about Jesus who loves you and came for you, died for your sin to forgive you and bring you to God. And this made sense to Joe. And so he received Christ in his later university years and it stuck. And through a lot of different twists and turns, when he got to Cleveland, he felt God's tug to quit sports journalism and go into youth ministry. And yet he didn't get hired by a church. He started raising financial support to work with secular suburban kids and to try to get them interested in Jesus. Now, as you can imagine, his family was not excited about this. I mean, they had spent a lot of time and energy to get him a great university education and get him a good job, and he quits it to go into youth ministry. They didn't get it. And so he found himself in a town without a lot of connections, hours from home, not a lot of friends, single and wanting to be married, and it was tough sledding dealing with this burgeoning youth ministry. I mean, public schools back then weren't excited about some creepy guy coming on campus to talk about Jesus with the kids. They're not excited about that even today at times. And the youth and the churches wondered, why don't you just become a youth pastor? And the kids didn't necessarily warm up to him as quickly as he thought. Eventually, this guy would have an amazing ministry in the high school that I was at, but it was really a hard-won, hard-fought few years in which he was working with us very tough suburban kids. I remember one day he and I were walking in the hallway because I I just knew something was different about this guy, even though he was a dork. And and I just thought, you know, there's something in him that draws me to him. And so we're walking down the hallway and you got to picture me as a bratty high school kid. You know, I'm saying, hey, dude, you know, this guy and ignoring this guy and doing what high school kids do and just trying to do my thing. And, And Joe, this guy, is saying hi to everybody. I mean, it might sound like a small thing, but I mean, saying hi to everybody, like the burnouts and the jocks and the dorks and all this. And like, I finally looked at him and said, you got to stop saying hi to everybody. They're not saying hi back and it's embarrassing. And I'll never forget what he said to me. It changed my world. He said, Jamie, we need to pull people out of their shell. They all have needs. Their greatest need is for God. And if we don't take risks like saying hi to them, they'll never come out of their shell. I had absolutely no answer for that. All I knew is that this guy just didn't seem to care what other people thought. That there was a peace inside of him flowing like a river, as the old hymn says. And this peace was not dependent on outward circumstances. See, you guys got to see this. I had never seen that in my 17 years of living. I had a great upbringing, wonderful parents and great brother and okay sister. And I had a wonderful, you know, family that I grew up in. I had wonderful friends and all of that. But, but everybody's peace depended on their circumstances. Give me a head nod that you understand that. Life's going bad, no peace. Life's going good, you got peace. Never met anybody that was able to transcend that until I met Joe. Eventually, Joe would uh, leave youth ministry and go to be an inner city pastor in one of the toughest parts of downtown Cleveland, where he's been ever since. And this was by nobody's definition an easy road. And yet every time I talk to him, even though life is hard, peace flows in his soul. 
no matter what the circumstances, he has peace. And this stubborn peace that was so evident in his soul was one of the primary reasons I trusted him as a confused junior in high school. And it also played in huge when I accepted Jesus because I wanted that kind of peace. So let me ask you again, have you ever met a follower of Jesus who had the kind of personal peace that you just didn't admire, but you salivated after? My guess is, my hope is, that most of us have. Because you see, here's what Jesus made clear when he was on this earth, and that is that peace, personal inner peace that rises above the cruddy circumstances of life is to be the normative experience for his followers. We'll get to in a minute why that isn't so, and there's some very intelligent answers as to why so many Christians lack peace. But before we do, we can't escape the reality that peace was designed to be the everyday normal experience for those who would embrace Jesus because he has it and he's willing to give it to us. And so as we wrap up this series today on John 16, here is what Jesus reveals to us. It's a game changer in your spiritual life if there ever was one. And it's our main point today. It's the only thing I really need you to remember. And that is that inner peace is found in one place only. And that is the person of Jesus. Inner peace is found in one place only. And that is the person of Jesus. And though some of you find this statement kind of vanilla because you've been around the spiritual block way too many times, I want to be clear about something here that might add some color and texture to this. And that is that by making this statement, we are saying that inner peace is not found in ourselves. We are saying that inner peace is not found in our circumstances, up or down, good or bad. Watch this. We're saying inner peace is not found in others around you. As wonderful as your spouse is, your kids, your good friends. I mean, I got them, you got them. Inner peace is not found in them. And you have to stop trying to demand it from them. And it's certainly not found in the world around us. No, Jesus makes it very clear that ultimately peace is found in none of these places. It's only found in himself. Now, to most clearly see this in the 11 verses that wrap up this teaching here in John 16 that we spent the last month in, ironically today we need to read the last verse in order to get the first 10. So there's 11 verses we're going to look at today, but we need to look at the very last one to understand the 10 that come before them, and you'll see why right now. So John 16, verse 33, the last verse of this chapter, finds Jesus saying this. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. So notice two things here that are really important for where we're going right now. First, these things I have spoken to you are going to give you peace. So that's why we have to read this verse first. Because the these things I have spoken to you, at least the 10 verses that come before this, if not the three chapters that come before this, are designed, Jesus tells us, to bring peace to our lives. So in just a second, we're going to look at what these things are and how we get our peace. But before we do that, notice a second thing here. And that is that before Jesus even tells us how we get our peace, he tells us where we get our peace. And that is that peace is found in me, in him, 
in Jesus is our peace to be found. That's really important. As one Bible expert points out, this means in Jesus alone. And the reason is, is because Jesus didn't say that you're going to find peace in me and some self-help books and in me and a good game of golf and a nice bike ride and an intimate evening with a spouse and an adventurous vacation and a few political rallies. No, he doesn't mention any of that stuff. He says, you're not going to find peace, true peace in any of those places. It's in me, in him that you will find your peace. And so I love how Frederick Dale Bruner says it in commenting on this verse. This is good. He says, he, Jesus, is the only hero in the greatest story ever told. It's true. There's a story going on around you guys right now. I'm going to challenge you to this in a few minutes. That You have your own story. We'll call it the smaller story. (laughs) But there's a larger story that God is doing throughout all of history and all of this world. And the trick in life is to subsume your smaller story in his larger story. And here's the cool thing when you do. You find out that the larger story is really the only one that matters. And that in that larger story, you're not the hero. Only God, only Jesus is the hero. And only in him is peace found. Now, once we understand this, the obvious question that you and I would ask is how do we find peace in Jesus? I mean, let's be brutally honest at this point. I'm going to try to be gentle here as I usually do, but we need to deal with something kind of gritty here. And it's this, that it's a good question to ask, how do Christians find peace? Because there's way too many Christians who claim to know Jesus, and at least from my outward observance of their lives, they don't seem to display much peace. Was that gentle enough? I I mean, I I see that all the time. I I, I meet Christians, and you know, they say, yeah, I got peace flowing like a river. I go, yeah, please show it to me, because I don't see it. And I see the opposite in you, that when difficult times hit, man, you're all over the map and where is God? And And I get it, I empathize, I'm a pastor, but that ain't peace. And Jesus displayed for us what peace is like. It's why my friend Joe's story is so powerful, because I've seen it in Christians before, but not every follower of Jesus displays this inner peace that Jesus says all of his followers should have. So the question is, what gives? What have some followers tapped into that others have not? And thankfully, Jesus tells us, these things I have spoken to you of verse 33, that as we already established, point back to verses 23 through 33, contain at least three things that Jesus tells his followers that we can and should do that will lead to peace. And conversely, if you don't do, then don't complain that you have no peace. Here's the first one. And that is that we get peace through prayer that connects us with Jesus. I have chosen this point very carefully, gang. I didn't just say you get peace through praying. No, we're gonna understand what Jesus means here. We get peace through prayer that connects you intimately with Jesus. So look with me at how Jesus tells us this in the opening verses of this section. Look at verses 23 and 24, and then verse 26. Jesus is speaking, and there's an amazing pattern that he he gives us here that you don't want to miss. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. 
Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. Then verse 26, in that day, you will ask in my name. Now, obviously the pattern that I want you guys to see here is that thrice repeated phrase, in my name. Jesus says that if you ask something in his name, you're gonna get what you ask for and the implication is, based on verse 33, you're going to have peace because these things he has told us so that we might have peace. But the question becomes, what does he mean by in my name? It's a fascinating phrase. It's used only six times in all of the Gospel of John, three of them right here. So this is really important stuff Jesus is laying out. And first, let's deal with the misnomer that so many Christians have when it comes to this phrase, in my name. Because if I don't miss my guess, most of you have heard that when you pray, you need to tack on at the end of it, in the name of Jesus, right? I hear Christians all the time. Oh God, you know, we pray that so-and-so gets an office or we pray that, you know, my kid does better. We pray this and then we, we pause a second. Oh yeah, in the name of Jesus, amen. And most of us think if we just sort of tack on that phrase, in the name of Jesus, then we're following Jesus's words here and we're gonna get what we want. The problem is, is that this is a grand adventure in missing the point, if you think that that's what Jesus is saying here. Because that's not what he's saying at all. He is not saying just say in my name and you're gonna get what you want. It's much deeper, more richer than that. So let's understand what he means. And here's the key to it all. Today, if you have a name, and I'm not here to denigrate your name at all, but if you have a name, it's just a name. I mean, some people today try to tell you what the meaning of their name is, and they're just weird, right? I mean, most people today, you know, have a name, and it's a name. My name's Jamie, and I'm just known by Jamie. My buddy Mark is here right now. He's known by Mark. Uh, Tom is in the front row here. He's known by Tom. And it's just a name. It's not more than that. It's not less than that. It's our name. Here's what you need to know is that 2,000 years ago, they didn't think of names that way. In Jesus's day, a name carried a lot of weight. Watch this. It denoted character and it denoted personhood. It described and denoted the core of a person. Uh, Proverbs 22.1 says it this way. A good name is more desired than great wealth. So your actions, who you are and were as a person was attached to your name 2,000 years ago. And you became known by your name for who you were as a person. So here's why that's important. If you used someone's name back then, if you say came to another person in the name of another, like when Jesus sent his disciples head into, head into Jerusalem to get the donkey, and they said, well, this isn't your donkey. And they said, the Lord needs it. This is for Jesus. And all of a sudden they gave him the donkey. What's going on there? Well, there's something powerful behind that name. But what was it? If you use somebody's name 2,000 years ago, it denoted closeness to that person, that you knew that person. And then it also denoted that you were there to do business on their behalf and you knew what their will and purpose was. Isn't that rich? So again, when Jesus sent the disciple ahead to get the donkey and he said, the Lord needs it, immediately the guy that owned the donkey said, well, he must be really close to Jesus and he must know the purpose and will of Jesus. And so because of that, based on the name, he released the donkey. So go back to John 16 now. What Jesus is getting at here is that when you and I regularly and consistently pray, 
praying to the Father and praying to Jesus. And in that process, get close to him and begin to discover the priorities, the purposes, even the will of God for our lives. When we have the kind of prayer that connects us with God, and we start to understand his heartbeat, then very naturally your prayers are going to begin to be rightly directed. And because it is God's heartbeat, you're going to receive an answer. But the point is not going to be in getting what you want. The point is in the closeness that you have. That's what Jesus means by in my name. A closeness that you have in which you discern the very will and purposes of God for your life and those around you. And it's in this closeness that you get peace. So Jesus isn't saying here in these passages, just pray and you'll get peace. He's saying pray in such a way that you connect with me at a deep level. And I'm going to start to do something in your soul that is going to start to let you rise above and give you peace. And this is exactly what Jesus was saying in John 15, verse 7, a passage we looked at last year. Maybe now it will make more sense. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Seems so simple. It's not. You need to abide in him. Get close to him. Understand him. And have his words abide in you. And when you do that, there's a kind of connection that will not only give you answered prayer, but give you that peace over time that you're looking for. Uh, The year was 1998. Kim and I had been married for about 10 years. We got married in 88. And I've told you guys this before, and I have her permission. We had a rather tumultuous first 10 years of marriage. She was married to me. That should explain all of it right there. And uh, we went into ministry right away. We were very young. We had no money. We uh, had three kids in four years. And so we were overwhelmed. And, uh, and, and, and we were in and out of counseling. And you know, our church was great to us. But it was a, it was a hard one, hard fought 10 years of marriage. And so in 1998, I wanted to do something really special for her to celebrate 10 years of marriage. And I was watching TV one day, and there was one of these jewelry store advertisements for a 10-year anniversary ring. And I know they're really targeting rednecks with that, but I'm a redneck. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out buying one of these stock rings. And when I find out how much it was, it was only a few hundred bucks, I thought, I don't, I don't have it. I, I marked seasons in my life by what car I was driving. Back then, I was driving a, a Renault Alliance for you car guys. We called it the Renault Appliance. I mean, it was that bad. And, and I didn't have the money, but I had been saving for some stuff. And so I, uh, I thought, I'm going to do it. And so I, I grabbed Abby. I can remember the day I grabbed my middle daughter. I, it, we weren't allowed to leave the house back then without grabbing a kid. It was that chaotic. So I, I grabbed Abby. She was about six years old. And I put her in the Renault and uh, I went to the jewelry store and I'm looking at this ring and it was this beautiful ring with, I mean, really microscopic diamonds, but it was diamonds and, and, and there was, you know, at least four or five of them. And I thought this is a beautiful ring and, and I paid cash for it. And uh, the next day I, I went to work church and I was shown at one of the pastors and he asked a weird question. He said, do you think she'll like it? <laughs> and actually I hadn't thought of that up to that point. I thought that's kind of a good question, I guess. And, I found myself saying, she'll love it, she'll love it. And, and he didn't ask why, but I, I found myself thinking, why, why do I think she'll love it? And, and the answer was really simple. And that was after 10 years of marriage, with all that we've been through, I know this woman. And she's gonna realize that I've never bought her one piece of jewelry since we got married. 
And she's going to know that this was really sacrificial. And she's going to know, even though it's a store-bought thing that lots of other people might buy, that this came from a heart that really loves her. And from what I know of Kim, and I know her pretty well now, she's going to love it. I gave it to her on Christmas Day. And uh, we talk about it now almost 20 years later. She loved that ring. She, she really does. And the only problem is, is that both of us have gotten older. Our rings have shrunk. Have some of you found that? You know, I, I didn't think that could happen, but they do. And so we're both resizing these things. And, uh, and, and that's a special, special gift I gave here. Here's the reason I tell you that story is, could it be that um, this is what Jesus is saying here? Because I think it is. He's saying, as you get close to him in prayer, the kind of prayer that really gets to know him, not just the kind of prayer, I call these parachute prayers, not just parachute prayers where you're free falling and you, you scream out to him for help and he usually does help you. And, but that's not, that's not a really get to know him prayer. I mean, when things are going fine, do, do you forego an episode of law and order in order to spend some time with Jesus and just talk to him? Do you forego that hobby that you have and focusing on that to focus on Jesus? just to get to know him. Years ago, uh, one of my friends had a, had a terrible, terrible disease, eventually took his life, and uh, he had to get a bone marrow transplant to deal with this disease. And this was back in the 90s, and he said it was the most terrible experience he'd ever had in his life, that they, they just drain your body of all this bone marrow, and they put you in an isolated place, and it's very, very painful, at least it was back then. And he said it was just one of the most lonely, painful experiences he'd ever been through. And then every time he would tell me the story, he would tear up because he said, you know, for 30 years before that, I, I would have these quiet times with the Lord in which nothing happened. Like, you know, I'd read the Bible and I'd pray and be, okay, what's next, you know? And, but he said, because I was told to do it every day, I did it every day. And he said, and I was laying there in the hospital after 30 years of quiet times and I needed Jesus the most. And he'd always cry at this point. He would say, he showed up. And he was there for me. And in the midst of that terrible situation, I had peace. And he said, and I realized all those quiet times in which I thought nothing happened paid off. But what was my friend Doug saying? He was saying that as he got close to Jesus over those years, as he learned his will and his purposes, as he spent all that time with him, when he needed him the most, he could experience his presence. See, the problem is he never leaves you. He's always with you. But we've not trained our souls to be open in the presence of God and to experience him. And you'll never do it except in the school of prayer. And that's why I say that what we need to do is spend time with him in prayer to get to know him. And as you do over time, you're going to have more peace. Now, we're fast running out of time. So more quickly, let's notice a second thing that Jesus refers to that will give us peace in him. And this one is right on the coattails of the first one. So we're not gonna spend a ton of time on it, but it's worth noting. And that is that we get peace through faith and trust in who Jesus is in our lives. And this just makes sense when you think about it, gang. Because if the first step is to get close to him in prayer, so close that you would know what in his name is about, then certainly as you and I do this over time, we will trust him more, we will place more of our faith in him, and that's bound to give us peace. And this is precisely what Jesus means in the next verses when he says this. 
is he's continuing on this theme of these things I say to you so that in me you may have peace. He says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed or have faith that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world and I am leaving the world again and going back to the Father. And his disciples said, we believe that you came from God. And so Jesus lays out here what he wants them to understand about who he is in coming into this world, that he was eternal in nature before he became human. He came forth from the Father from all eternity, and he got incarnated into this world as the second person of the Trinity, human in form, and that he's leaving the world again after he is crucified and risen from the dead, and he's going to ascend to the Father. And though the disciples don't understand all of this right now, they would very shortly. And he's simply saying to them, do you believe? Do you have faith? Remember that larger story, smaller story thing? Is your smaller story, disciples, going to be matched or fallen into the bigger story of what I'm doing in this world? That's what he's asking them. Do you believe that? So this is really important for you and me today. We have made these things into doctrines that we give intellectual or mental credence to, and that's not bad. The only problem is, that's not enough, amen? It's not. There are plenty of people who believe certain things, but their lives are no different at all. And you know what that tells you? Is that they're hypocrites. (laughs) That they believe one thing. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is somebody who believes one thing and does another and in a sense, we're all that way. You guys have heard my joke for years. You know, when somebody says, you know, I don't want to go to Scottsdale Bible Church. It's full of hypocrites. I always say, no, it's not full. We got room for one more. So, you know, because <laughs> it's true. In one sense, we're all hypocrites. But in another sense, you never want to be comfortable being that way. Amen. And so the point here is that don't just say, I believe, I believe, I believe. Say it and mean it. Amen. So that his larger story of what he's doing in this world of coming to die for people and to forgive their sins and get them on a path to righteousness and obedience and faith and love, that that's your story as well. So that as you're following him, your belief and your faith is growing each moment of each day. That's going to start to give you some peace. So we connect with him deeper in prayer, and that gives us peace. We engage our faith and trust in him, that gives us peace. And then, we've got about 10 minutes left. Uh, Let me give you the final thing that Jesus tells us that is designed to give us peace in him. And I want to warn you right now. The first two things I shared with you are like really intuitive. Like if you were going to, you know, try to explain the Christian faith to somebody in order to get peace, you'd say, well, you better connect with them in prayer. You need to trust in Jesus and all that stuff. And then that's true. Uh, This third one seems to come out of nowhere and is not very intuitive, but here it is. And that is that we get peace through trials that breed brokenness in our lives. And believe it or not, in this, you will find your peace. You got to love Jesus' style. You know, right after he uh, tells the disciples about their wonderful belief and faith in him, and the disciples affirm that faith. I just read that for you, where they say, we believe that you came from the Father. You would think that Jesus would look at them and say, way to go, guys. Man, glad you got that faith. It's going to carry you a long way. It's going to give you peace. I mean, kudos to you. It's interesting. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, he just rips them apart for it. Look what happens as he responds to them saying, we believe, in verses 31 to the end of this chapter. It says, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? 
Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not going to be alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have, say the word with me, peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Now we need to do one last thing before we wrap this up. We need to wrestle with what Jesus is getting at here because it really is mind-blowing. There's actually a, a duality going on here where twice he mentions this really negative stuff. He says the disciples are going to be scattered, which is true, but he's not making it into a positive thing. He said, you guys are going to abandon me, but don't worry, God will be with me. You know, the Father and all that. And, and then he says, secondly, you're going to have tribulation. That word literally means hardships, difficulties, trouble for the rest of your lives. So like, that's kind of a downer. But then he, he, he matches that with two things that he says are also going to happen. One, you're going to have peace in the midst of all of that. And secondly, because I've overcome the world, you're also going to overcome the world. First John 5 would tell us that, that, that anybody born of God overcomes the world because we're following Jesus. So on the one hand, just feel this, you got scattering, you got tribulation, but on the other hand, you got peace and you got this idea of overcoming. And the question we need to wrestle with is what is that about? I mean, how does that work? And though I tell you guys this all the time, it's just so important that you see it. You see, we live in a culture today, a toxic American culture. Now tell me if this isn't true, that is addicted to comfort, amen? I mean, all of us are. I mean, we just fight for our next little jolt of comfort. We're just hedonists and we don't even know it. I mean, even today, many of you can go home this afternoon, you're going to say, that was a great sermon. Uh, you know, what should I have to eat? You know, or that was a great sermon. I wonder what I can buy this week, you know, or that was a great sermon. You just, I mean, it's just so a part of our lives. And I'm not here to get down on you for that. I'm really not. You guys are very generous. You're taking Christ seriously, all the good stuff. What we need to remember, however, though, is that God doesn't hate the difficulties and the trials of our lives as much as we do. Because we're addicted to comfort, anything that ever gets in the way of that, we think is evil and bad, and God must not want that in our lives. God has a very different take on it than you do. God essentially says, I've already upstreamed this thing. It, I already know it's a fallen world. I already know this isn't your home. I already know that the reason heaven is so good is because this place is a dump. God knows that. If you don't believe me, read Genesis 1 through 3. It gives a quick Cliff Notes version of why all this bad is here. And God is really clear that I'm going to take those trials, those difficulties, and, and, and I'm going to use them to allow you, watch this, to get to the end of your rope, to get the end of yourself, in which you realize the only thing you have is me. And in the ashes of that brokenness, I'm going to rebuild you. But I'm going to rebuild you to depend on me, to trust in me, to have me be your all in all. And you're going to be less addicted to comfort, less concerned about all the things of this world, very concerned about me. And in that, you're going to find your peace. Paul the Apostle discovered this in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he was praying to God like many of you do, you know, take away this thing, take away this thing. This isn't good. This is bad. And God reveals to him, he says, no, 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 you don't understand. You see, you think that your, 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 your power is going to come from power. What you need to understand, Paul, is that my power in your life is only comes, only is made perfect when you are weak, when you're at the end of yourself. And being the passionate person Paul is, he, he goes, well, then 
I'm going to brag about my weaknesses. I'm going to start telling everybody about them. Because why? When I'm weak, then I am strong. And you see, here's what we need. We need more people in Scottsdale and Phoenix bragging about your brokenness. Now, again, you got to be careful. I don't want to mean to be a sadist. <laughs> but, but, but you go around saying, you know, this is the mess that this fallen world has created in my life. But look at how good God is. Look at what God can do with a life submitted to him. Look at what Jesus can do in giving us peace. You got to stop running from your brokenness. Embrace it. Because God wants to use it to give you the peace that your soul desires. One last story and we're done. Let's go back to my friend Joe. Uh, one of the reasons I love this picture of my friend is because uh, it, it's a solitary picture kind of denoting a solitary life. It, this is him, I'm sure, at his church and somebody took this picture. They're having some sort of a meeting there. But it's a picture that just denotes a lot of aloneness to me. Also, you can see him in a rather contemplative mode here, processing a lot of the stuff going on in his life. I will tell you right now, that that is the sum of much of his life. As I said to you earlier, he's not had an easy ministry. I mean, he's pastoring in some of the most difficult near west side area of Cleveland, and it's been really hard to grow a church there. In fact, for the last 40 years, every month he sends out support letters because many of us have to support him financially because his church can't afford to even pay for a pastor because they don't have any money. I mean, most, the vast majority of them are living in poverty. And, and so it's rough sledding. It's day by day. He's dealing with the most difficult issues of drugs and prostitution and broken marriages. I mean, it's just, you know, this is, you guys know the drill. It's just very difficult in the inner city. And what's amazing is, is when I get his support letters, if you guys think I'm honest, I'm only honest because I was trained by the best. He never sends out a support letter that's like really flowery and just tries to cover over everything. And his support letters, he just says, this is what I'm dealing with. And many times I even say, and I'm super discouraged. You know, it's just hard not to be in dealing with all of this stuff. But invariably, at the end of every support letter, and he doesn't do this intentionally, he says, but let me tell you where I'm at with Jesus. <laughs> and I start talking about all that Jesus means to him and who Jesus is, because you see, he's applied the three things we've talked about here today. He talks to him all the time. He praised him all the time. He would rather pray than watch Law and Order. He'd rather pray than do the things that many of us do. And in that school of prayer, after 40 years, he's pretty close to Jesus. He's very close to Jesus. And, and even in the midst of the dour, difficult times, Jesus is there as an experience for him, not a head knowledge, an experience. His faith and his trust are in Jesus, not in his church, not in his culture, not in his wonderful family, but in Jesus and the brokenness. He can't run from his trials. He doesn't have a really nice golf course that he lives on like some of us do. He doesn't have a great shopping mall to go to around the street to try to forget about all of his problems. See, he doesn't have any of that. He's faced with them each moment of each day and he can't run from them. All he can do is find Jesus in the midst of them. And here's my question for you. Could it be that therein is contained the secret that many of us need? You know, when Mother Teresa was alive, people used to go visit her in Calcutta and the slums there were just awful. And people would wonder, you know, how in the world can you do this? I mean, how can you do this and even still remain a Christian? And she would always say the same thing. It's because I see Jesus in everything around me. She didn't need Kierland to see Jesus. She didn't need Fashion Square. She didn't need the Cardinals, as good as all that stuff might be. She could see Jesus 
in the slums of Calcutta because he's everywhere and he's even in your life. You just gotta see him. See him in prayer. See him in increased faith. See him in your brokenness. Embrace him because he loves you and he wants to give you peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing teaching of Jesus here that really is a challenge to many of us. Uh, God, I confess in my own life that I am way too addicted to the uh, comfort that is in our culture today and I can uh, use that to try to insulate myself from the things going on in my own soul. But God, we don't want to do that. We want to realize that much of the battle that we have before us is fought in the interior life of our souls. And that, Lord, once we see that, we realize we're all the same. We're all made of the same stuff. We're all dealing with the same stuff, whether it's Joe in the inner city or us here in Scottsdale. And so, Father, I pray that as we try to, to, to wade through all the stuff in our culture and our lives, that, God, you would get us to the simplicity of what Jesus is talking about here. May we first and foremost realize that our peace will be found only in him, nowhere else. And God, may we then realize that as we dig deep in our faith, we need to, to get close in the school of prayer, more so than we are now. And that, Father, we need to engage our faith and trust the larger story, subsuming our smaller story. And that, Father, we then also need to stop running from our brokenness, stop feeling shame about it, but submit it to you and watch you turn the ashes into a life of peace. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus and all he is to us. And I can say, Lord, with great faith that we pray in his name because we know his purposes, we know his will, and this peace is that. Amen.